Merry Christmas to everyone. So I know um, Brad, uh, Chad just prayed, uh, but I have a thing. I, do, I never want to preach without praying before, uh, even just for myself. So if you guys would just join me as I, as I go before God and just lead us before God, that he might speak through me and correct me and fix my intentions and my errors. Father, we just come before you with uh, open hearts that you might speak to us exactly the words that you want to be spoken. And God, you would interrupt any agenda that I have that is not yours. That any intention I have, God, that you would intervene and that your will would be known. Father, we thank you for your love. We thank you for your presence. And we ask that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our heart be holy and pleasing to you, Lord, our rock and redeemer. Amen. Well, we know the phrase, be careful what you wish for because you might get it, right? Um, I remember as a kid, I used to always uh, say, I wish I was older. And I would say this to my mom or I'd say this to my dad and then they would say, well, be careful because one day you're actually going to get old (laughs) and then you're not going to be so happy about it. And I've even heard uh, within some Christian circles, people translated this into prayer specifically. They would say, be careful what you pray for, because God might actually give it to you. Be careful to be praying for challenge or hardship, or that, for that you had to have a trial, so that you might be grown or stretched. Remember after Bible study, as we studied James 1, and that comes up. Consider pure joys, you seek trials, as you face trials. And so people, people would pray for trials, and then others would say, well, be careful what you wish for, because God just might give you trials. Um, but there's this idea in that, be careful what you, what you pray for because God might give it, uh, that, that God is like a kind of a genie, so to speak. That he answers our prayers without any kind of a consideration about what we actually really want, what we really need, about what is really good for us. As we think about what the picture of like a genie is, think about Disney cartoons, Aladdin. That genie, he doesn't care about what is actually good for Aladdin, at least Towards the beginning of the movie, right? That, that Aladdin could ask for something completely bizarre or stupid or foolish. And, and the genie would just give it to him. As if it's just some kind of magical words you say. And that's what makes it happen. And sometimes we have this idea about prayer. Uh, there's this, the movie Bedazzled. I know there's actually two of them. There was the old, older version, the original version that was in the 60s. And then there was a, a version that I think that was redone sometime in the early 2000s. And it's you know silly idea of a movie, uh, but there's some there's some interesting claims I guess you could say are made within it. But effectively, this guy sells his soul to the devil for three wishes. And part of what happens in it is that he's really just trying to win this girl over. He's trying to get a girl to fall in love with him, and so he would come up with these wishes. He, he would he would make these wishes to the devil, to Satan, hoping that this would this would win her over, make me rich, make me smart, make me talented. And the devil would always somehow take that, that wish and he'd give him exactly what he wanted, but it would twist it. Sure, you, you might be the most talented basketball player in the world, but you can't put a sentence together coherently. You might be rich, but you're rich because you're a criminal. And the next day, the cops are coming for you. Right? So there's always this way in which, in which what he wanted or what he was asking for wasn't ever really what he wanted. 
And there's this, there's this lesson in this story that sometimes what we ask for isn't really what we need. It isn't really what's best for us. The devil can give exactly what we ask for. And, it, and it's not necessarily what, what's best for us. Right? And there's actually maybe even a deeper lesson in that. We don't always really know what we want. Even if you're wise and old and you've, you've thought through life, you still might not know what you want. We have such a narrow perspective of life, of time. It's so hard for us to understand and grasp what is really good for us. Over a lifetime, what is really good for us. I want to hear these, this phrase, be careful what you pray for, God might give it to you. All I can think is that we have this kind of a picture of God that's like that. Like the devil and, and bedazzled. That he, he doesn't, he's not thoughtful about what is good for you. He just gives what you ask. And here's the thing. That isn't God. That is a completely false picture of God. As you scan through Scripture, it's not how God operates. It's never how God operated. Like a good mother, or a good father, or any kind, any parent, God won't give what is ultimately not good for you. And, I, and I'm sure most of us understand this and believe this and know this is true. And so this whole rule of be careful what you pray for because God might actually give it to you is actually really just total nonsense, isn't it? God is always going to give what is best for you. He's always going to give what is best for you. Um, and, and if that is true, understand this. That unless your prayers are always perfect, unless you have that all-knowingness that God does and that you understand what every course is going to take you down, unless all your prayers are always perfect, it means that there are going to be times we ask for things from God and we are not going to receive it. Right? Ipso facto, logically, it necessitates that. That God is never going to give anything to us that is ultimately not good for us. And that means there are going to be times in which we pray for things because we're not always perfect. We don't know what's always best for us. It means that there are going to be times that we're going to be praying for things and God isn't going to give it to us. But we can all be honest that in the moment, in the moment that we are asking for God, that we are seeking, for, we are seeking things from God, it's really hard to deal with the fact that we are praying desperately to our Heavenly Father, and yet that we are not getting the response that we want. It's much easier to conceptualize this just in a theoretical way than to actually have a request that is an answer, especially when it involves pain or hardship for ourselves or those we love. I want us to wrestle with this question today, and it's actually kind of a part two from last week's sermon, unofficially. How do we deal with those times of silence? How do we deal with those times that we, that we come before God, we pray for God to, to, to resolve crisis, to resolve pain, to resolve problems? And yet it seems like we get nothing but absence. God doesn't grant the request. God doesn't grant the, that, that, that deep want or need that we think we have and we are pouring it out before our Heavenly Father. Understand, this was a very real struggle within the Psalms. You do not have to read very far into the Psalms to see that this is something that the authors of these Psalms, these, these prayers, these songs of worship, 
that this is something they wrestled with. There are times in which we feel like God isn't answering our prayers. That's going to happen. But in the end, as you read through these psalms, in the end you notice something. You notice a certain pattern within them. Sure, they might express, God, where are you? But they're always in the end, they recognize and they celebrate God. It's a profound thing, but you see it again and again and again throughout the psalms. I can't think of a psalm that ends with kind of this, I don't know where you are, God. They always come back and recognize, God, you are good. You are good. You are worth celebrating. They start with a sense of a feeling of hardship and end with this recognition and celebration that God is good to those whom he loves. Um, Psalms were rarely written in a day. They were probably very rarely written in a day. Uh, We we assume that they probably were written over weeks, maybe months, maybe even over the course of a year. And so in a way, as you read these psalms that express and go through these hardships, you're actually probably walking through the journey of hardship that they were facing. And so that they start, sometimes they start with this, with the sense of pain, and then they end with a sense of worship. Because they, because they have seen and they have known that God is good. Now, this is one of the beautiful values of a prayer journal. Uh, I, the other day, I stumbled upon a, a couple of prayer journals that I have started, never finished. It's like three book, three different journals that I start and then never finish. Um, and, and one of them traces all the way back to when I started in seminary about 10 years ago. And it's amazing to look through these prayers that I wrote to God and these things that I desperately asked for. And I remember there were times in which I thought, man, I don't think God is going to do what I want him to do. And now I look back and I think, thank goodness he didn't do that. I look back and I think, wow, yeah, he had an answer for me. It's just six months down the road. It's, it's remarkable to see our prayer life over a lifetime. Today we're reading Psalm 22. And a psalm that is so familiar to so many of us. And honestly, not just because of the psalm itself. Because it starts with, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Where have we heard that before? It's heard on the cross, the words of Jesus. I remember one time, it was about a year ago, I was, I was in the season of meditating over the psalms. And I uttered this, my mom was around and I uttered this verse. I said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And she said, oh, that's so sad. <laughs> But there's an honesty within those words, is there not? I want to pitch us an idea this morning. And we're going to read the psalm in a very different way. Um, that I, want, I want to pitch this idea that the psalm is really about Jesus. That David was the author, but this was, this was about Jesus. This always was about Jesus. The psalm was written about a thousand years, just short of about a thousand years of when Jesus walked the earth. But I believe as I read this psalm, I can't see it any other way, but that it is a prophetic word, a foretelling of the cross, of the prayer, the mindset, of the heart of Jesus on the cross. I want us to read this psalm as it is Jesus' prayer on the cross. Uh, David wrote it, but if you read through this, uh, so many of the events that the psalm talks about don't really fit David's life. It's true in a very broad way. 
David faced a lot of persecution, but there are details described in Psalm 22 that makes no sense in the life of David, and it only really makes sense in the life of Jesus. And I think Jesus wanted us to think of it this way. I think that's part of the reason why he prays that. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why that's recorded in Scripture, so that we might read this psalm and think about Think about this, this psalm fits the heart of Jesus that was written a thousand years later. A valuable way to read this psalm, Psalm 22, is to read this, that this is Jesus' prayer on the cross. And as we read this prayer today, I'm going to let us think of it and envision it, that this is the heart of Jesus on the cross for us 2,000 years ago. These are the words of the heart of Jesus that he's praying before his father. I believe this psalm was written prophetically. And it, and it, sir, it is a prophecy in order to build faith for us, but also to teach us about prayer, about how to pray, even when God says no. As we read the psalm, I want you to envision this is Jesus' prayer on the cross. These are the words of Jesus to God as he was pinned to a wooden beam and bled to death for us. Let's read it. Psalm 22, beginning on verse 1. My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Why are you so far away when I groan for help? Every day I call to you, my God, but you have not answered. Every night I lift my voice, but I find no relief. Uh, Jesus quoted uh, verse 1 exactly. Quoted verse 1 exactly. He prayed, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why do you feel so far away? Uh, Why? Why why, why does that make sense? And so theologians have ideas. I have ideas, of course. Uh, But simply at the moment that Jesus was on the cross, there was something else going on, something more powerful going on than just nails being driven in his skin. For the first time, a sinless man is experiencing sin. Uh, Not that he was sinning, but he's feeling the weight of sin. The weight that we humans feel. That separates us, that divides us, it pushes us away from God. The sense that that we we, we experience where we just don't feel God the way that we probably ought to or should or want to. Jesus was sinless. He never felt it before, but here he's experiencing it because he is now paying the price of sin for us. And then he says, I called for help, but you did not answer. Now, what's this referring to? You just think about this. So what's this referring to? If you recall the story of Jesus' death, the story that led to Jesus' death, Jesus prayed that night or the night before uh, that he prayed at the Garden of Gethsemane. He said, take this cup from me. Take this cup from me. That Jesus knew what was coming. He knew he was about to be betrayed. He knew he was about to go to the cross. And in this, in this fear, I don't know what it was, but in this series of emotions, he goes before God and says, God, if it is your will, Father, if it is your will, take this cup from me. Take this burden from me. Don't let me go to the cross. If it's your will. And the night that Jesus prayed that, he, he prayed that hours and hours and hours. And yet, it was very important. He was submissive to the Father's will. Whatever it is, though, I am yours. And then God answered in a few 
long hours, he answered with a group of armed guards. And at that point, you know, Jesus knows what the answer is. The answer is no. You're going to face the cross. And Jesus was obedient to God's will. And this is what Jesus, this is with his prayers, I called for help. Now, this doesn't hinder Jesus' view of God. It shouldn't hinder any of our view of God. It's when we, we pray and we feel the silence. Picking up at verse 3, we're going to keep reading through the psalm. I want us to see the whole picture that, that, that's going on in this verse, in this passage, I mean. Verse 3, it says, Yet you are holy. Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praise of Israel. Yet is such a powerful word. Despite my circumstances, I know you are holy. Verse 4, it says, Our ancestors trusted in you, and, they, and you rescued them. They cried out to you and were saved. They trusted in you and were never disgraced. Um, history shows us God is good to those who love him. Right, that's part of what the beauty of having the Old Testament is. The story and the life of Israel as a nation. Right, and we see that God is good to them. God is always good. And Jesus is looking back and saying, I can look at the way you have, the way you've treated, the way you've, you've brought through and saved so many of those who love you. He appeals to the history of Israel because um, that becomes a point of evidence for why he should trust his father. Not just his own history, but the history of all those who love his father. Even though you say no, I trust you because you have proven yourself to be good. Now from here, the prayer transitions to his circumstances. He reflects on the situation he is in, that he's surrounded by a bunch of people who want blood. In verse 6, he says, But I am a worm, not a man. I am scorned and despised by all. You can imagine Jesus half-naked, bleeding out with a crown of thorns on his head. Everyone who sees me mocks me. They sneer and they shake their heads, saying, Is this the one who relies on the Lord? Then let the Lord save him. If the Lord loves him so much, let the Lord rescue him. The mockery mimics the mockery of Jesus on the cross. Just a crowd around him, mocking him. And yet Jesus stays humble for the sake of love. Now let that be the example of how you deal with people who mock you. For the sake of love, be humble. Continues, verse 9. Yet you brought me safely from the, my mother's womb and led me to trust you at the, my mother's breast. I was thrust into your arms at my birth. You have been my God from the moment I was born. Do not stay far. Do not stay so far from me, for trouble is near and no one else can help me. And Jesus once again pulls back to God's goodness here. He uses that word yet again, such an important transition word. I'm in a bad place, yet you've been my God. And you've always been my God. From the moment I was born, you have been my God. You have been good to me again and again and again. And it's almost as if there's this question, why stop now? 
There are two ways I want us to think about absence this morning, at least in the context of this, of this passage. Um, sometimes when we experience this, this felt absence of God, there's seasons in our life in which we face this like, whoa, I, don't, I just don't feel God, I don't see God right now. And, and we can let that stir up questions of doubt. Oh, I don't, I don't feel God anymore. Maybe he's not there. Um, but, but, but there's another way to think about this, is that if you actually are feeling the absence of God, then you've actually felt the presence of God. If you're experiencing this like, transition in which you say, God isn't there right now, God isn't there, you actually felt the very presence of God. I don't feel God anymore. Well, that means you've actually felt God before. There's something missing there. Right? It's like a caffeine withdrawal. <laughs> Something I know very well. Um, you, 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 you have this used to coffee being there, and now it's there, and now you have a headache from it. <laughs> and that's the feeling, I would say, that is probably what Jesus is experiencing. I'm used to your presence, and now it feels absent. And he goes on into a longer rant about his pain. Picking up at verse 12, he says, My enemies surround me like a herd of bulls, fierce bulls of Bashan. Have hemmed me in like lions. They open their jaws against me, roaring and tearing into their prey. My life is poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax, wet melting within me. My strength has dried up like the sun-baked clay. My tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You have laid me in the dust and left me for dead. Now, now here, here, here's something worth noting. He is recognizing that is a pro, a pain, his pain is a product of God's decision. Now, this is something very hard to deal with. I would say, especially young in faith, it's very hard to deal with. Uh, but, but I don't know a way around it. That pain is often a product of God's decision. I think of Martin Luther King has a quote. He says, real evil are those who look at injustice and do nothing about it. Right? But there's this idea within that um, that, that we, we are kind of uh, causally, we, you know, we are part of the cause of injustice. When we're looking at injustice or evil being done, we do nothing about it. If we have the power to stop it, we, we in some way become um, guilty of that. Become guilty of that injustice. And there's this reality that God is witnessing the evil and the pain in our life, the heartache in our life. In a moment, he could make it go away. In a moment, God can make that pain go away, but he doesn't. And this is something that's being wrestled with. God can make it stop, but he doesn't. But if you trust and you believe in the goodness of God, it just proves something else. And what Jesus is recognizing here is that that this pain isn't purposeless. That this pain isn't purposeless. That Jesus' pain on the cross, that what he was enduring, it wasn't purposeless. He, doesn't, he might not grasp the full weight of it at the moment. And as God is watching, I mean, sometimes we, we feel this, that like God is just watching us and is apathetic to us in our pain, in our, in our crisis. And in the same way we can envision this, like, that there's this feeling that God is just watching what Jesus is going through. It's just apathetic to it. But that isn't what Jesus believes here. That God is up there saying, I know it hurts. 
I know it hurts, but you must endure. You must go through it. I want us to believe that very thing. Your pain is never purposeless. Your pain is never without purpose. And I don't want to cheapen that, be like, oh, bad things happen, but, you know, tomorrow it's just going to be a part of some better story. I don't, I don't want to cheapen that because, uh, because we can recognize that there are some hardships that we don't grasp and we're not always going to make sense of in our life. But if we trust in the goodness of God, then we have to believe and understand that there's a reason why God lets hardship exist. It's a part of this grander story. Sure, he can make it disappear in an instant, but there's a reason he doesn't. Mature believers understand this. It's hard. It's hard to understand. But we must understand it. Turning back to the passage, picking up in verse 16. He says, My enemies surround me like the pack of dogs. An evil gang closes in on me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. Nowhere in the life of David does that make sense. That his hands were pierced and his feet were pierced. But in Jesus, we, we, we very clearly understand where that fits. Verse 17, I count all my bones, my enemies stare at me and gloat. They have divided my garments among themselves and throw dice for my clothing. Another place where it doesn't make any sense in the life of David, uh, but within Jesus it, it makes perfect sense. This exact thing happens to Jesus on the cross. Roman guards uh, took Jesus' garments and they t- tossed lots for it. And largely we understand that tossing lots actually went one of two things, literally pulling straws or they rolled dice. And in this instance, we think that what happens here is that they're rolling dice for Jesus' clothes. And then Jesus makes another appeal to God, picking up at verse 19. Take a look. O Lord, do not stay far away. You are my strength. Come quickly to my aid. Save me from the sword. Spare my precious life from these dogs. I snatch, I snatch, uh, um, snatch me from the lion's jaw and from the horns of these wild oxen. I will proclaim your name to my brothers and sisters. I will praise you among your assembled people. He's shifting to praise God. Praise the Lord. All you who fear him, honor him, all you, who, uh, all you descendants of Jacob, show him reverence, all you descendants of Israel. For he has not ignored or belittled the suffering of the needy. He has not turned his back on them, but has listened to their cries for help. This is a deep conviction and understanding of who God is. Even though there are tragic things in this world that happen, God does not neglect those who suffer. It's, 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 a, it's a truth, a biblical truth. God does not neglect those who suffer. In this life or the next, God does not neglect those who suffer. These last verses are really powerful, but tragically often overlooked. And this, the prayer changes. It goes from this me complaining and me expressing my pain and my hardship and this, this even these expression of doubt, these questions of doubt. And then it shifts to this place of praise. But, the, but, but then what happens next is really interesting. It becomes prophetic, a foretelling of what's going to happen. 
Now he's not just complaining and talking about his pain and heartache and talking about how good God is, but he begins to talk about what's going to come, what will happen, a foretelling of the future. This is exactly what faith points us to. This is exactly what faith points us to, that we might wrestle with celebrating God and worshiping God and, and struggling with our, with our questions of our doubt and, and the pain that we go through, but faith points us to a future and says, oh, I know that God is good, though. And I know the story is going to end well. You see, our knowledge of God, it leads us to believe and understand that he is doing something good. And that in the end, all things will be good. And we, as people with faith, can have full confidence that in time, this goodness of God is going to be revealed in ways that we don't understand right now. And that's okay. That's at the heart of the Christian faith. He is redeeming and restoring this earth. He is redeeming and restoring our brokenness. He is redeeming and restoring our pain. In the end, we will worship God. And that's that's what takes place in these next few verses. Verse 25 and on. I'm just going to read them all together right now. Beginning about verse 25, he says, I will praise you. I will praise you in the great assembly. I will praise you. Fulfill my vows in the presence of those who worship you. The poor will eat and be satisfied. All who seek the Lord will praise them. Their hearts will rejoice with everlasting joy. The whole earth will acknowledge the Lord and return to him. All the families of the nations will bow down before him. For royal power belongs to the Lord. He rules all the nations. Let the rich of the earth feast and worship. Bow before him, all who are mortal. All whose lives will end as dust. Our children will also serve him. Future generations will hear about the wonders of the Lord. His righteous acts will be told to those not yet born. They will hear about everything he has done. That's interesting. I mentioned that the beginning of this chapter beginning of Psalm 22, uh, Jesus uses those words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And there's actually some a scholarly discussion about the, the, the last phrase. It's actually the very last word here. It says, he has done. Could even be conjugated as it is done. Another word, another phrase or expression we hear in the life of Jesus. At the end of the cross, he says, it is finished. It is complete. Now, of course, uh, um, uh, the Gospels are written in Greek, but Jesus wasn't speaking Koine Greek. He would have been speaking Aramaic, a sister language to, to, to Hebrew. And it's likely, and some scholars talk about this, it's likely it's the very same words used. That when he says, it is finished, it is accomplished, it is done, it's actually the very same word that's used in the psalm. Isha. Now, um, looking at the last verse or I should say last verse is. I don't want us to miss where Jesus' mindset is here. Yes, he's in dreadful circumstances. You can envision the pain of the cross that he's experiencing. Yes, he's in dreadful circumstances. Yes, it's bad, it's painful, it's hard. But he's beginning to understand, he's seeing this is a part of God's larger purpose, not just for me, but for the world. See, sometimes our pain isn't for you. Sometimes our pain is actually for the people around you. You have no idea how God can turn that and use that. And this is something that God, that Jesus is celebrating. He knows that the cross is a part of redemption. The cross was a critical piece of God's plan. 
It was the way he could, the way he chose, and perhaps it was the only way he could redeem a wretched, broken creation like us. The debt of sin must be paid for. And Jesus was the only one who could pay for it. He's the only one of the good enough credit that he could be able to put it all at risk for the sake of us. Jesus gets this. He understands that this this pain he's experiencing is a part of the story of redemption. Now, I want us to understand that there are probably, not probably, there are at least two things here that we can read and we can understand that brought peace to the heart of Jesus as he clung on the cross. Two things I want to talk about that brought peace to Jesus, that as he prays and knows that God did not answer the specific request that he had asked, Two things that bring peace to Jesus. First, he knew that he was in God's plan. And you can see this throughout the psalm. He wrestles with it. He struggles with it. He expresses doubts and questions and problems and pains, but he knows he is in God's plan. Yes, Jesus could even have stopped this cross. Yes, he could bring fire down, killing off the Roman guards and scattering his persecutors. Even, even the devil kind of gives this glimpse as we talk about the trials and temptations of Jesus. The devil knows that, that Jesus has mighty power. He could bring down a, uh, angels, an army of angels, said a word. Certainly, Jesus could have ended the cross himself. But Jesus knew that wasn't God's plan. He knew and he trusted that wasn't God's plan and that he was in God's plan. The cross was a piece of God's plan. Jesus had, and he shows us what perfect faith looks like. Perfect faith doesn't mean that we're never tempted. Jesus was tempted. Perfect faith doesn't mean we don't even have this expression of emotional doubt, even for a moment. I think the very nature, the very expression, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's a kind of a doubt. At least it's just an emotional doubt. Maybe not intellectual, but emotional. It's this feeling of where are you, God? But he had perfect faith in that that sense that even under trial, he knew what was true. His reason, his understanding, his love for God rooted him into some bigger truth. And he clung to it. And that's what faith does for us. Despite emotions up and down, we know. Jesus knew on the cross. We can know in our circumstances God is always in control. God is always in control. Jesus knew that he was in God's plan. The second thing I think that brought peace to Jesus on the cross is that he knows that God's plan is good. That God's plan is always good. It's always good, specifically, just even a promise of Scripture that it's good for those who love him. All he endured was good for those whom God loves. This is a part of God's plan. The cross is a part of God's plan because it becomes good for those whom he loves. I am a necessary sacrifice for them. As people surrounded him and mocked him, and they beat him, and they persecute him, and they pierce him. What was, the, what was Jesus' words? What was Jesus' prayer for them? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Right? This shows you that Jesus deeply loves those people. 
Jesus thinks bigger than just himself. This is the way we should respond to our persecutors, right? Because here's the problem with persecutors. They don't know that at some point in time they lack knowledge. They don't know God. They don't know real love. They don't know their destinies apart from God. They don't know purpose, their purpose, God's purpose, the purpose of those who they persecute. Persecution is a fruit of ignorance. Persecution is a fruit of ignorance. So, so then rather than rebelling and fighting back and arguing or praying for disasters on these people, Jesus prays for forgiveness for them because they don't know. That's real love. I can forgive you because you simply don't know. I, 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 can, I understand where your ignorance lies. And I'm the one paying the price for that, but I can understand that. Now, Jesus models love. He prays for their forgiveness because they are ignorant. They don't know. But this shows us the kind of a person Jesus is. It shows us the kind of a heart that Jesus has. And his prayer reflects it. What gives Jesus confidence of his circumstances is that he knows God is working in all, all things for the good of those who love him. Jesus deeply cares about those who love him. In short, he knew God's good. Jesus took full confidence. He knew that God's plan was good. Jesus felt peace about God not answering his prayers because he knew he was in God's plan and he knew that God's plan was good. So how do you deal with that? How do you deal with those times in which you are praying, maybe for weeks, days, months, years even, for God to bring about some kind of solution that you have to a problem that you have? And how do we respond to God when it seems like he's ignoring those requests? Or maybe it seems like those just prayers just go unheard. We wrestle with this feeling. God, I'm praying. I feel like I'm doing everything right. What's happening? How do we respond to God? How do we respond to ourselves when he seems silent in our prayers? Uh, this prayer shows us. These were all feelings I think Jesus expressed. And I want us to learn from Jesus' example. When you feel God's absence or silence, or you feel like God is simply ignoring your prayers, know you are in God's plan. And know that God's plan is good. Unless you're deep, deep in sin, <laughs> you're in God's plan. When you submit that prayer, And it doesn't mean that all these hardships are instantly removed. But it does mean that you have just invited the divine to bring redemption to your circumstances and your pain. Now God's plan is going to unfold that. God is not absent from our life. That God is working, that he is acting, and time will show. Time will show that God is always good to those who love him, who wait for him. A while back, I was talking to this young guy, and it seems like I get into these kinds of conversations often. The guy was 18, just graduated high school, he started trying to work, trying to make some money. He was trying to pay off some things and build some, build some money to, do, to accomplish some things, trying to get ahead in life. 
And this young man was telling me, he said, um, you know, that old motto, hard work always pays off. He says, it's not true. I've been working hard. I have been working so hard, working and working and working, I can't get a break. I make a bunch of money and I have to spend it on something that, that I can't control. The government's after me. This is after me. This person's after me. Every step forward I take, it seems like I take two steps backwards. I'm listening to this young man just talk about how hard work doesn't really pay off. Um, tell me, what's the difference bef- between, between that young boy, this young 18-year-old who's, who's convinced that hard work doesn't pay off, what's the difference between that right out of a high school young man working for six months and, say, an 80-year-old man saying hard work does pay off? What's the difference between those types of people? This, this, this uh, 80-year-old man who spent his life working and building and, and fighting, and yeah, he had pushbacks, but he pushed through them. He doubled down every time he had a loss. And now he's retired, and yet he still continues to work for his community, for his family, for his church, giving and giving and giving. And that man says, hard work does pay off. And then you have this, this, this young boy who's sitting with this impulsive feeling like, no, it doesn't. It hasn't paid off. But his feeling that hard work doesn't pay off hasn't been tested by any real amount of time. But this, but this aged gentleman who's worked hard and hard and hard, it's been tested again and again and again. Hard work does pay off. And when it comes to faith, we are sometimes far too impatient with God. We are sometimes far too impatient with God. God didn't give me what I wanted. God didn't answer this prayer. God didn't, God, my life is still in a bad spot. I've been praying for this person. I've been doing this. And yet I'm still right here. God's not listening. My prayer doesn't matter. And we, 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 we act in this kind of impatient way to God. God's abandoned me. God doesn't care. Or even God isn't there. When our emotions want to run To that doubt, we must root ourselves into what we know, to what history has shown us, to what logic has demonstrated to us, to what we have experienced, to what those around us have experienced. Shy away from those impulsive emotions that want to run your faith amok. Shy away from them. Because that's what our heart does. It gets impatient, gets impulsive, and it runs to these, these, these doubts, these fears, these what-ifs. Shy away from them. Uh, one morning I was driving home. I used to go to the gym early in the morning. I was expecting this new toy to arrive in the mail. And it was supposed to come the next day. And I got an email notification on my drive home that said it was arriving that day. And, and, the, and, and, the, and the email said that if I were to log on to UPS.com, I would actually have an exact time estimate of when the package would arrive in my house. And so here I am, driving home, and I started to think, man, I really want to know. I really want to know when, when that package is going to arrive, though it didn't matter. It, it wasn't going to change my day at all. I promise you, it literally wasn't going to change the slightest thing. But here I am, driving home, and I open up my email as I'm driving, some of you are going to judge me for this. You should. <laughs> you totally should. Right? So I don't have an account to UPS. 
And I'm like, oh, create an account. So here I'm driving, and I'm typing in my name, birth date, all this useless information for UPS. It's right around the time that school's starting, and we live by like two schools, driving by high school, driving by middle school, and you know kids. They can be stupid at times. Parents can be stupid at times. Drivers can be stupid at times. Desperately trying to figure out what time is this package going to arrive? Like it matters. And eventually it hit me. I'm like, what am I doing? I'm an idiot. Why? Like it's literally saving me five minutes. I'm going to be home in five minutes. I can figure it out then. I threw my phone in the backseat and I realized I'm just being impatient. I'm just being impulsive. I want it and I want it now. I want it and I want it now. This little egotistical view of life. We often do that with our spirituality. God, I want this, I want this now. God, do this and do this now. Sometimes we even do this for, for the sake of growing as a Christian. A lot of, especially college students I've talked to, kind of say, I want to be a mature Christian. So they pick up the Bible once, maybe twice, and they're like, oh, this isn't working. I haven't grown at all. It's not how you become a mature Christian. You don't become a mature Christian because you picked your Bible up once and read it for five minutes. You become a mature Christian because you've spent the last ten years of your life pouring your heart and soul into it and trying to understand it. And that's just how spirituality works. Right? There's this tried and true that we can trust. Um, tried and true Christians. Tried and true faith. Faith that has been tested again and again, prayed over and over, seen God again and again, and better and worse in the mountains and in the valleys of life. That faith knows, a tried faith knows, God is good. God is good. God is worth trusting. God is worth praying to. God is worth chasing. I see it again and again and again. And sometimes I don't understand why some prayers are answered in the way I want and some aren't. But I can tell you this, over the course of years of praying, especially as I look through those prayer journals, I know I can always trust God with the prayers that I give him. I think one of the most important things that we look at Psalm 22 and we look at Jesus' prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane and that we can understand a powerful, powerful thought that I, 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 I don't want to say I thought I discovered, but, but I, that I just recognized. Jesus doesn't regret the cross. Jesus doesn't regret the cross. And in fact, I believe, as probably many theologians, as many Christians, most Christians do, that it's probably the most important event that, that, that Jesus ever did. The most important thing that Jesus ever did was go to the cross. I don't think Jesus looks back at the cross and thinks, Father, if you just answered my prayer, my life would have been so much better. The world would be so much better if you just answered my prayer, but you didn't. Now look at me. I don't think even the slightest sense does God think, or Jesus thinks that way. Yes, Jesus prayed. Yes, he requested, requested, and yes, God said no. But in the end, he is pleased with the Father's decision. That's what a tried and, tried and true faith discovers. Jesus is good. He's worth trusting. He's worth chasing. He's worth praying to. I often talk about what I call axioms of faith. Axioms, and they're, they're these statements, rules, or principles 
that I think is critical, critical for Christianity. They become good guiding posts of how to live as a Christian. And one of these axioms of faith that I, that I talk about and that I believe, deeply believe, is that God's plan for your life might not look the same as your plan. But his plan is certainly better. And in today's message context, I would say this. God's answer to your prayer might not look like what you are asking for or what you are planning or what you are wanting. But his plan is certainly better. That's what real faith points us to. Bottom line, Jesus' solution is better than yours. And we can trust that. Thank goodness God doesn't just grant every prayer. Thank God that God doesn't do that. That God isn't just like a genie. That he didn't just answer every request regardless of what we're asking. Thank goodness that God does not grant every prayer we ask for. We would have never had the cross if he did. Right? One of the last thoughts I want to leave with you this morning is that I believe God answers every prayer in the way we would want if we knew what he knew. So once again, the, the problem here becomes it's our lack of perspective, our lack of knowing what the whole plan is, and that sometimes we pray and we don't get what we want, and we experience a sense of disappointment, and that's simply because we don't understand. But if we knew what Jesus knew, if we knew what God knew, God answers every prayer in, that way, in the way exactly what we would want. That if we, just, if we had that proper perspective, sometimes we don't get what we ask for because we don't know what God knows. If God simply just granted every request, we would end up with a bunch of crazy prayers. We'd end up with a bunch of crazy um, answered prayers that come from narrow perspectives. Um, the movie Bruce Almighty a silly movie, another silly movie. But there's some very um, good theological messages in it. So the, the, the basic premise is that God uh, makes Bruce, this, this character, Jim Carrey, be God for a couple of days or something. And he just starts answering every prayer request that, that somebody asks. And it, <laughs> the result is it's just like the world is in chaos. Everyone won the, won the lottery, but people got like two bucks. <laughs> Right? But there's this, there's, this, there's this message in there that we don't really know what we want. And thank goodness, God does not answer every prayer that way. Life would be a disaster. Be empowered to be people who continue to trust God. To be people who pray to God again and again and again. Continuing to invite God into the things you care about. Into the things that trouble you into the things that concern you or burden you. Invite God into that. Know and believe and trust Him with His answers. Because you are inviting the divine presence into your problems, into your, your requests. God is working. He has a plan. And His plan is good. 
Amen? Pray with me. God, so many of us here in this room have had times in which we struggle to understand the dynamic power of prayer. God, you are way more complex than a vending machine. But God, help us to be people who trust you. Help us to be people who can just rest in the knowledge that you are good, that you have a plan, and that your plan is good for us. Give us the ambition to pray desperately. Give us the means to pray desperately. God, because we all need your presence in our life. Father, I just pray for this community, God, that you would just... Your spirit would infuse each and every single one of us here this morning. That our hearts might be changed. And that we would internalize the message, the word that you have for us this morning. God, help us to believe and understand and know that you are good. You are worth trusting every day. And help us to be people who share that with boldness. To defend that with integrity. And to speak of it with honesty. Father, we love you. And we thank you for all that you do. Pray these things in your name. Amen. Well, it is fitting that this morning we talk about the heart of Jesus. The heart of Jesus on the cross. And at the same time today, we start Advent. We started Advent. We reflect on the hope that we discover in Jesus. The hope that we have. The story of Jesus' birth and what that means for the world, what that means for us and our relationship with God. And today we also celebrate communion together. A time in which we remember what Jesus did on the cross. What the cross really means. That the cross was the necessary step for redemption. For us and for the world. Today we celebrate that by remembering it. And by taking communion together. I'm going to invite the ushers up. come, Come up. Uh, and during this time, what we're going to do is that I'm going to um, I'm going to pray over this um, this communion that we're about to partake together, and then they're going to go out and they're going to pass it out. And then when they're done, we're going to gather back together. We're going to read a passage from First Corinthians chapter eleven that is call to us to remember what the point of this, these elements are, and then we will take them, we'll eat them, and we'll drink together as a church family. And as these are being passed out, think of the heart of Jesus. As you grab the bread, as you hold the juice, think think of the heart of Jesus that we've discovered in this psalm this morning. Remember that the cross is a gift. It is heaven's proclamation of God's love. Today we remember that. And we pray over communion and then we will pass it out. Father God, we just uh, come...
together as a as a church family and as we just um, as we hold the bread and as we hold the juice, God, I just ask that you supernaturally work in those elements so that they might speak to us. God, we might even be led to tears that we just get emotional as we recall, as we remember your love in this sacrifice. Thank you, God. Help us today to say that with all sincerity. Thank you, Jesus, for what you've done. Amen.